Today's businesses are on a vigilant watch for threats in an ongoing cyber war. It's time to get real-world solutions to protect and secure your valuable business information anytime, anywhere. Welcome to Cybersecurity America with Josh Nicholson. You're about to gain special access into a world of restricted information and a backstage pass to the inner sanctum of cybersecurity operations. Here's your host, Joshua Nicholson. Welcome to the latest episode of Cybersecurity America, titled The Deadly Confusion Between Attack Surface Reduction, ASR, and Vulnerability Management. In this episode, we dive into this critical topic, which is often overlooked in cybersecurity. Although there's more work being done in vulnerability management, there are far fewer people focused on a true ASR program. As there reals ignorance on what's the next evolution of defense looks like, vulnerability management is only a shallow stage in the cybersecurity maturity journey that uses scanners to identify vulnerable IP addresses that need to be patched. However, this approach is problematic when used as infrastructure risk management because it only addresses software or hardware maintenance. And before we dive into the rest of this episode, we're going to go over to Aaron Beerland for our weekly Deep Seas Threat Intelligence Report. Aaron? Thank you, Josh. Just a couple of things to highlight for intelligence this week. Everyone in every organization is interested in how to leverage artificial intelligence within their organization, and nothing has highlighted this more than the advent of ChatGPT and the ability for people to write letters, ask questions, and even its integration into Microsoft's Bing search engine. But this interest has also come to the attention of threat actors. Threat actors are now using ChatGPT as a lure to get victims to go to websites and download malicious software guising itself as ChatGPT, primarily installations of either software or memberships that get you a discounted or a free membership to ChatGPT Premium. The threat actors are using this primarily as a lure to bring people to websites that are conducting phishing attacks, but there's also the potential that they would be able to actually use ChatGPT software and perhaps insert malicious code within the installation file, which is a common tactic that we see from other types of software that are popular within organizations. This goes along the lines of a lot of the SEO poisoning that we've been pointing out throughout the last few podcasts as far as intelligence goes, and the leveraging of Google ads that threat actors are using as well to lure victims into downloading malicious software. ChatGPT is no exception to this kind of tactic. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything specifically wrong or malicious about ChatGPT itself, though we have seen it leveraged in writing code and checking malware to make sure that the code is clean, but the installation of it from not direct sources or supposed third-party sources, and this is primarily seen on Windows and Android devices, its popularity is being used as a leverage point by threat actors. The second report is United States Attorney Roger Hanberg announced on Wednesday of the arrest and extradition of Derry Pankov, who was a 
prominent cyber criminal known for the creation of the malware known as NL Brute. He was arrested by Georgia authorities in October and then extradited to the United States in February. But the indictment has now been handed down. And it's said that he is supposed to forfeit $358,437, which was the amount of money believed by the United States to have been made by Pankov with the illicit activities that he conducted with the implant NL Brute. Now, what NL Brute did was it was it would decrypt login credentials like passwords and also uh, be able to infect other computers and basically give access using this this malware that he either sold to other actors for a fee or just collected the login credentials. Now, typically people like Pankov are what we would consider access sellers. These are threat actors that will compromise computers and then sell access to that to other threat actors for them to then either implant ransomware or just conduct any other malicious activity. And this is the type of dark web activity that we regularly monitor at deep seas. And these access sellers are considered one of the first steps in the chain of compromising and larger compromises, primarily with things like ransomware threat actors. What will happen is these different malwares or other software will be used or vulnerabilities traced to infect as many computers as possible, get the credentials, or just find a way to obtain usernames, passwords, emails, things of that nature, put them together into a large data set, and then attempt to sell it. So someone would buy that and then they'd be able to follow, conduct follow-on activity. So we monitor these access sellers to see if there's patterns between access sellers and ransomware operators. Sometimes being able to make connections between that initial access and what's popularized in it. A specific vulnerability that might be being leveraged or a specific tactic that's being used by the malware that's gaining this access or grabbing these credentials like info stealers and even sometimes some of the bot net activity that we see and being able to link that to victims of ransomware compromises or other types of malware compromises to include nation states who will who have been known to go out to some of these forums to get access if there's a specific victim that they're interested in. So access sellers are a very prolific part of the cyber criminal landscape in how they conduct their activity. They're the separation of this activity from just somebody who's intent on trying to get as much access to as many computers as possible, vice a ransomware operator who is attempting to target an organization for the maximum amount of money possible. This is all part of that larger cyber criminal empire that's basically turned into its own economy and its own business. And so this is something that we pay very close attention to and try to communicate with our customers so they can understand ways to keep their credentials secure, ways for them to avoid becoming a victim of this, and training the workforce on how to avoid different different ways of getting their credentials compromised, either through poor software, bad cyber hygiene, or something just as simple as responding to a bad phishing email. These are all ways that threat actors are still very successful, even though it seems like the workforce is very knowledgeable on these different types of tactics. So watching access sellers and monitoring dark web activity is something that we do to try to find new tactics, techniques, and procedures to communicate over to our clients and customers, as well as through this podcast, as far out as we can possibly go 
to be able to educate everyone on better cyber hygiene to make it less likely for them to become a victim of cyber crime and ultimately to try to reduce the viability of cyber crime overall throughout cyberspace. But that's all I have for this week, and hopefully we'll talk to you next week and I'll have more intelligence to bring forward to you. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for that update, Aaron. That was enlightful. So today's a really exciting episode we have. Today is going to be on attack surface reduction. What is it? How does it benefit your program? What can you expect moving forward in the future? So today I'm joined by two great guests. I have Ken Gonzalez. Ken has more than 12 years experience in cybersecurity in multiple areas, such as consulting, auditing, defense, and offensive services. As part of his experience, he's performed multiple consultant processes over mid and large size companies regarding cybersecurity controls, both technical and administrative. He worked in IBM security at security intelligence consultant, and he led the X-Force Red offensive security team in Latin America. He is also a recognized instructor for pen testing and general cybersecurity courses in the universities in Costa Rica, and the author of security, several cybersecurity articles. Ken Gonzalez is always so backed up today by another guest of ours. We have is Jason Norquist, and Jason is currently a professional services lead for our attack surface reduction function. He's an accomplished veteran of the United States Air Force, an extensive background in leadership training, as well as a track record of success in cyber threat intelligence, program development, technical training, defense contracting, and procedural management. His extensive background in cyber threat intelligence capability development and operations, both from the federal level and on the commercial level. And they have the wealth of experience in multiple sectors of industry, healthcare, pharma, oil and gas, media tech, government, and military. Welcome to the show, both Ken and Jason. That's an impressive background. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Josh. Yeah, likewise. Happy to be here. Awesome. Today's topic is going to be attack surface reduction. And part of the things that we were talking about in previous, previous episodes was really about how attack surface reduction is really vulnerability management with threat intelligence infused into it and so forth. But Jason, how do I describe what attack surface reduction is? What's its benefits and so forth? It's a new term with some people. Yeah, it's interesting because I do have a pretty extensive threat intelligence background. So I feel like the movement over to supporting attack surface reduction capability had a natural segue with a lot of threat intel infused. A vulnerability management, it's basically the remediation of vulnerabilities. These guys are working day in and day out to, to patch vulnerabilities, but that's a very small piece. You, you got to start and think who's identifying the vulnerable, the vulnerabilities, any issues that need to be patched. A lot of times vulnerability management teams don't have the bandwidth to follow a lot of intelligence news or different uh information sharing groups where a lot of the exposure to vulnerabilities is actually being announced. If I had to sum up what attack surface reduction is, really, it's just very concerned efforts to identify, remediate any tactical deficiencies that that will help you limit the number of vulnerabilities or exploitable assets across your entire enterprise. And it's not just identifying vulnerabilities, it's prioritizing those vulnerabilities based on those that are, well, based on a number of factors, but primarily based on buying those that are, those vulnerabilities that are exploitable. In addition, you have a lot of, organ go ahead, Josh. So would you say pretty much is like a prioritization and risk management of vulnerabilities? So 
I remember as a Cisco jock, we had iOS IEVAs that would come out from the government. It would say there were vulnerabilities in the Cisco IOS. But at the same time, it was in the routing protocol of OSPF, for instance. And we were EIHRP. We never would invoke that kind of software on the router. So the risk of us patching it was actually greater than the risk of us just never using and disabling that software. How do you take the, how do you start to look at the risk in the first place? So I'm assuming the impact to the system, what's the classification of the system that may be vulnerable? What are some of the other factors that you should use when determining whether something should be patched and how much of a risk it is? Yeah, that's a great question. When just tracking tracking back to the vulnerability management teams, if we were to patch every vulnerability that that was announced, the, these teams would be completely just dominated with these vulnerabilities. It's not really possible. So prioritization is key. So some of the things that we look at is a number of factors. But firstly, whether or not it's exploitable and exploitable can be pretty broad in, in and of itself. So we look at some more factors as well. So what is the, the ease of exploitation? Can anybody exploit this vulnerability or do you need to have a large amount of assets and expertise to, to actually exploit this vulnerability? The complexity of the attacks themselves, are they reliant on any other factors? And then when it comes down to actually working with a particular organization, the organization, the infrastructure itself is important to look at. Are these vulnerabilities something that's going to show up in our externally facing enterprise? That's certainly something that we would look at. I know currently we've been somewhat aided by the U.S. government with the CISA known exploited catalog, which is pretty helpful, pretty much identifies a very large swath of exploited or exploitable vulnerabilities. So that, that that's a great place to start. What's the name of the, what's the, name of the resource it, again? It's the CISA Known Exploited Catalog. I think right now there's probably about a thousand vulnerabilities in there with all the details of the exploits, links to help out any of the cyber defenders get to get some exposure to that. I would say, firstly, you definitely want to have all of the top of mind so that at the very least you're ensuring that your ex- externally exposed infrastructure is not vulnerable to any of those because they are being tracked and exploited by known threat actors. That's a good question. Ken, I know that in Latin America and some of the ASR programs that you've experienced, what works with customers sometimes? Some of them try to run their own programs, try to build up their own services and their own team members for that. You also have a managed service component, but what are some of the challenges have you noticed with your customers in your area of the woods? Sure, Josh. As Jason mentioned before, I think that there is a known paradigm about vulnerability assessment. And sometimes one of the first things that we need to address is the false sense of security that a lot of clients could have when they start a vulnerability management program or an attack surface reduction program. But let's talk about the legacy type of vulnerability assessment programs that multiple companies could have. So basically, I see a lot of times that companies start that process as one of the initial points to begin their whole cybersecurity strategy. And sometimes my experience, that's a little bit tricky since a couple of things could happen. And one of the interesting ones is basically get results that would align with something that says you don't have a lot of critical vulnerabilities. And like Jason mentioned before, if we do not transform these vulnerability assessment or management programs into attack surface reduction programs that will have variables like 
the industry context from the client, the weight of each of the assets that we are evaluating, the explorability or the re-ranking process for the scoring that we have from the default platform to review the vulnerabilities. There is a bunch of things that we need to take into consideration. Could be a false sense of security in those scenarios that basically says, yeah, I have, I don't know, 10 vulnerabilities in my external website. So I already addressed those things. I am secure. So let's move on and do not worry about our external surface anymore because we already solved the vulnerabilities. But again, we need to understand that is a photograph taking a period of time. And that, and that doesn't mean that in two weeks, three weeks, one day, even one hour, the photograph will be. So that's one of the more challenging things that we could have or we could experience, not just in Latin, but probably in some other years that we could have or we could be involved. The other portion of the services that we need to consider is like the sometimes a lot of companies must comply with vulnerability assessments or vulnerability programs. And that's it. It's compliance, right? And they don't care about the actual management or reduction of the vulnerabilities and decrease the possible impact of those vulnerabilities being exploited by, by, by a known actor or whatever kind of attack or attacker that we could have. So that's the other thing. Among other things that we could talk in the next following minutes, but in my opinion, that false sense of security or just thinking that vulnerability assessment is just enough, it's something pretty important to address in those days, in these days, especially with a lot of attacks and campaigns that we are seeing on a daily basis. Yeah, that's a good point. I think when people don't realize attack surface reduction also incorporates hardening guidelines for servers and systems and reducing the attack surface pay attack surface really has to do with a full way of understanding hygiene, vulnerability management, risk management, as, as well as configuration drift management almost. We don't want to have four or five different desktops with different standards. One's the gold image, but you're going to say this is the standard image for everybody, but it's there's 20 different flavors of it, and it's not the stand. And some have a Jabber over here, and others have Adobe, and it just nothing really matches. And I think it gets so much harder to manage an attack surface that they may have 20, 30 different versions of Linux, especially a big enterprise. And so it's really hard to figure out where do you start with. And what I noticed, it doesn't look like a lot of companies started with that hardened baseline. They may have started with an image for a desktop, but that was just so they can stamp a bunch of laptops and send them out. Nobody really sat down and said, let's harden this desktop. Let's pen test it. Let's ensure it's logging properly. It's got everything it needs. And then stamp that and kind of move forward. I also say where the attack surface reduction program just gets decimated during a merger or an acquisition in which you take on another target company and you have no idea their assets, how that flows into things. All of a sudden you have old things in your asset inventory. It's almost like if the integration team took the time to make it a homogeneous environment, start to get rid of some of the old PCs, stop trying to reuse everything. When you're always trying to reuse everything to save a buck, but it kills us on the back end because we've got 15 versions of an operating system and all because of that's there. So in those really chaotic environments, I think you can have a really mature attack surface reduction program, but it has so much headway because of how IT is managed that it may be ineffective in many ways until you get your house on order of just how are you managing your assets and keeping up with them? Does that make sense, Ken? What are your experience? I think that there is a hole or something that we need to be clear in terms of how can we manage the vulnerabilities 
in assets and how can we manage the assets itself. Here is a thin line, thin gray line between the attack surface reduction program and uh, CMDV that we could have internally to connect those things between each other and have a big understanding of all the things that we have in our environment, right? And there must be that integration because I see some scenarios from where vulnerability assessments or attack surface reduction programs works in a different way that the whole CMDV is working and the information that we have in the CMDV is not updated and we are having things that are not aligned with what each other, right? Meaning like, for instance, we have a bunch of servers the commission on the CMDV and then we have a bunch of new servers in the initial asset inventory in the attack surface reduction program. And then we have a misunderstanding of those two universes that must be integrated because at the end, the CMDV must have that information for the rest of the teams to be able to consume. Wait, what is critical? What is not critical? What is the baseline configuration for those items? And do we have, like you mentioned before, Josh, do we have something already hardened? And we need to keep it that as it is, or do we need to include those things in new refresh periods to de- to delete or remove whatever OS or whatever application that is updated because it's out of the board period from the vendor, things like that. So when you have a pretty good CMDB program or a pretty good asset management inventory process, you will facilitate a lot of things, not just for vulnerability assessment or attack surface reduction, but for pen testing, for change management, for a lot of things, right? So one of the cornerstones that we need to have in the IT environment or in the technological environment from our companies or clients, it's basically that order, that key database that will allow us to understand what do you have in your house? What is your current inventory? Do you have systems that must be like take place or take care of because those are legacy and we cannot get rid of those things. Doesn't, in my experience, sometimes you see a lot of, still, you see a lot of Windows Server 2003s or even Windows XP computers. And you all- And OT environments, right? Seems like XP (laughs) and they're getting motherboards off of eBay, right? I was in this one (laughs) aluminum processing plant and they literally, the replacement, the machines that we use were like 45 years old. So they have no replacement parts if the thing ever breaks. And um, it was just interesting to see how many OT environments were actually using Windows XP as the base. Yep. And it was trying to get that solved, trying to get the password standard, even just to have it authenticate under modern-day Active Directory without using NTLM. It was just any of that kind of stuff, trying to put multi-factor on some of these machines. So. Yeah, I have a real fear of the OT environment being one of those environments where I think you could do a lot of good with attack surface reduction. We all noticed it's hard sometimes doing OT because you can't stop manufacturing. You can't stop the line. You normally don't have the same normal EDR tools and tools that you would have and so forth. But having a real good inventory to ASR program seems to be like the number one best step you can do in an OT operational technology environment. Would you all agree with that? Yeah, I would certainly agree. When it comes to the OT environment, like you said, there's going to be things that you're not always able to fix. You can't just shut down when things come up. However, your team has awareness to these issues because they're being identified by your attack surface reduction team where you can at least educate the staff and you can try to implement other mitigations to, to 
subvert those vulnerabilities that are cropping up within an OT environment. So I think definitely an attack surface reduction team can and does very much contribute in the OT realm, similarly to the IT realm. That and that's the other important piece there is that when we talk about OT environments, uh, that inventory is something critical. But remember that we need to remember that the process, the technical process to assess those environments is pretty different for the from the process that we will have in whatever IT or a standard IT environment. Meaning like, for instance, the tools, even the tooling that you are going to use to assess the OT environments are totally different because something as simple as an NMAP or as a ping could be able to either disable a PLC or affect whatever system that is controlling whatever plan. In my couple of weeks, years ago, actually, I executed a vulnerability assessment, one-time vulnerability assessment in a in a plan in Chile. They mer- they, they The plan was used to make beers. And it was pretty interesting because a lot of the work that we execute is not the actual execution of the vulnerability assessment is the awareness program for the people in the plan, the awareness program or the risk management assessment that we need to execute before the actual vulnerability assessment for them to understand the risk. How can we control those risks if something like that happened? And even with that, after we run the assessment, a couple of guys in the plan told me like, yeah, you run this and Two, two of the plants, two of the system that we have stopped working. But no, no worries. No one is there. We are, we are at night. We're at the middle of midnight. No, nobody is using that. But again, control those assessments or control the process is something key before we even start with OT. And sometimes a lot of people or a lot of companies says, could say, could say a couple of things. First is we are not going to take care of this because the effort that we need to invest is too much. So let's just be sure that IT is separated from OT, nothing is seen between each other, and let's hope that no engineer is living any VPN or any like remote access program in the OT environment. And the other companies that has a more broad like vision or want to sell or really invest in cybersecurity, sometimes they go with the other not that good approach that is basically let's do something that is that could cause problems. So a key portion here is to have, or a key aspect here is to have someone or a team with a lot of experience in, in what things could be wrong in the OT environment. And then how can we fix or control those risks in order to mitigate whatever could happen in the actual plans? Because we are talking about physical things, right? It's not just a computer goes down. It's just a computer goes down and someone is doing whatever physically in the plan and something could happen to him or her, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly why in the Marine Corps, they offered me EOD and I refused it. I was like, because <laughs> if I mess up a radio system, you just can't talk to a bird for a while. You mess the bomb up and you just, they're going to find you in your helmet. <laughs> so yeah, I definitely understand the ability, especially in the OT environment, of taking the operational necessity and context into it. I think it's much easier on the IT side. You just use whatever software distribution system we're going to use with patch management. We're going to push it. You may have 2 3% fail. We're going to have the desktop technicians remediate them. You move on. 
OT, yeah. just so much different world. And then in some things you can't patch the that provider, that PLC provider never certified that that patch or that driver and so forth. So you have to sit and this goes to that question, do you remediate, mitigate, or patch in other situations? So let's say there's a situation you can't patch that. It's not certified. You have no idea what that controller would do. So how do you put a compensating control? How do you mitigate that? So if it's a telnet vulnerability, you shut down telnet, for instance, on the machine. And yeah. you, you architect around that. At the same time, do you say, okay, I know I'm vulnerable instead of trying to create these security controls that locks things down. And I'm not really sure what it's going to do, what the impact is. Can I at least just develop a monitoring solution around that particular use case and go, okay, I can't block it, but I can at least see those TTPs being used and use that use case. Exactly. And I would say very similar to like the longest time people would just dump all their firewall logs on into a SIM and use that for correlation. And so mm-hmm. very expensive. And you usually don't need a SIM to do that kind of work. It's usually some hunt based. But what they were looking for was port scans. And you ask, well, why is port scan so important? In the OT environment, port scans were the only way they found WannaCry and a couple of the other vulnerabilities was just that external noise that it was kicking off. And they felt that since they had no other control in there except the passive IDS, that was the only thing that they could do. Now you have solutions like Nozomi and what's the other one? Clarity, which gives some kind of security overview of OT environments. But it just seems to be a real challenge. And I'm not really sure we've got OT and ASR and all kind of solved. Yeah, it's something that definitely needs to be taken care of. A good recommendation we normally uh, recommend to clients is basically something that not a lot of clients or enterprises could afford, right? But having a good testing environment for the OT is something important, right? Because we're going to talk about pen testing in a few minutes, but even if you want to pen test an OT environment, it's normal for pen testers to do not test live environments. They all, always requires testing environment for OT. If the client do not have a test environment, the execution will be a lot similar to the vulnerability assessment over OT environment that it's basically capture traffic and then parse and understand the traffic and see what is happening, right? Do not like, it's basically a, pay, a passive scan of the network. But with that, we have a good testing environment, even with PLCs that we are not using or not to replicate a full plan, but at least having those devices or or things that are critical for the operation of the plan or the facility, having those things in place and connected to a test environment would allow us security like experts to go ahead and test for new use cases, like you mentioned before, Josh, if we don't have the control to solve or remediate the vulnerability, a compensating control will be monitoring. But even that good approach is to test that we are getting the right use case for the client, right? The right use case in the monitoring tool and not just sit there and waiting for something to happen and see if that use case triggers something. If we could have the possibility to go ahead and proactively test the use case, the TTP, and execute that TTP and see how the the detection mechanism will react, it's amazing. And that's why we have the other approach, right? The bridge attack simulation approach that, again, we will talk about that probably in a few minutes. But merging all those things and understanding that OT will have that big, important piece when something bad happened is something key for 
companies to understand. A lot of companies rely on their facilities and plants to make money. And if you are not controlling those environments, you are putting the whole risk or the whole company at risk, right? So that's something important to address. So Jason, it seems like for OT environments, we really, some of them are not mature where we can actually do attack surface reduction. It seems like you would barely do patch management and vulnerability management, yet, yet, we all know it needs to go to the next level. So some of these customers, they focus too much on vulnerability management, just instead of the attack surface reduction. And I think that makes us really myopic sometimes. It's really just whatever the vendor says is that I have to support and I push it. I don't really have a more holistic approach. How would you take an ASR program and then say, okay, Ken, we need to start doing pen testing on X, Y, and Z. And this is, so how does attack surface reduction actually flow into penetration testing manage detection and response, testing, breach attacks, I mean, and that kind of stuff. What are, how does it all work together? Well, I'm um, sorry, Josh, was, was that for me or Ken? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in terms of, you said breach attack, sim, bre sorry, breach well, attack simulation. Let me just restate it again. So essentially we have the, the mechanisms of regular vulnerability management, right? That in IT, it's just patch management, it's pushing patches out. There's no real mitigation of it. They see it just as a software problem, something has to be patched out. And the IT side, you add ASR, you make it into attack surface reduction by infusing intelligence into it, and you develop a program that has risk management, intelligence-based input into whether something needs to be patched, something needs to be mitigated, reconfigured, and so forth. But in the OT side, it's kind of the opposite. It doesn't seem like we have a lot of people in being able to do ASR at the OT side. So what do they do in some cases in OT? So I think from an ASR standpoint, when it comes to OT, it's really just about really fully understanding your environment. If something's being targeted by threat actors, a specific vulnerability and a specific manufacturer or vendor device, you need to be aware of it. You need to make sure that those folks that are in that OT environment have the knowledge that they need to one, identify those assets and two, they have what they need they have the intelligence supported or intelligence support for them to know what they need to add to those the, those devices or bring to those devices or the people running those devices in order to provide any type of mitigation or compensating controls because we do know that we're not going to be able to in in most cases patch these devices so you just need to be armed with the knowledge of knowing what your environment looks like in the OT space find anything that you can do to actually better protect your organization if there, there is anything that you can even do. But in most cases, I think just having the ability to really identify any type of vulnerabilities or misconfigurations with your assets. <clears throat> that makes sense. Now, just switching topics a little. So having a good vulnerability management program infused with intelligence gives you attack surface reduction. But then that next level of maturity to be able to do breach attack simulation or penetration testing on it. So what is, Ken, what is, uh, obviously we have several types of penetration testing, go over that from a high level, but what is breach attack simulation as well? So you want to cover what those two are? Sure. I think that the, the, a lot of people are familiar with penetration testing exercises because a lot of a lot of companies right now are executing that as their like cybersecurity program on like even yearly basis at least. And basically that's uh, simple to understand if we understand what is a vulnerability assessment or management or ASR. And basically is how can we exploit those vulnerabilities? Vulnerabilities is going to show us that we have something in our systems 
that could be used to get access to a computer or get access to whatever, right? Pentest is just basically taking those vulnerabilities and doing the exploitation process, doing the actual execution and see what the attacker will have, right? Obviously, the execution will be done by a cybersecurity expert without any malicious intent. That's one of the key po- key points of the penetration testing that basically you are going to be attacked, you are going to be targeted by by a by an attacker that is not going to sell your data in the dark web. It's just going to show you, yeah, you have this vulnerability, could be exploited using these two methods. And with those two methods, you have these recommendations for you as a company to solve those things. Even, for instance, take the recommendations from the vulnerability management team or the ASR team and said, yeah, we need to disable those legacy servers because those ones are the facilitators for the attack to happen or uh, something really important that in some occasions standard vulnerability management programs do not take care of that is basically misconfigurations because with vulnerability management the old school vulnerability management that relies totally on platforms to execute those assessments you are going to miss a lot of misconfigurations and misconfigurations are key for uh, attackers to take advantage of the systems and that's why penetration testing is so interesting because we do not rely on like the information that we could get from whatever tool. We actually go ahead and not try to understand the logic of the system, the logic of the environment, and see how can we exploit that using those misconfiguration default settings or things that systems are not going to pick up and notify that something is happening. So that that's one of the key important things of penetration testing that basically is test those vulnerabilities, those things that, that we could discover and see how far can we go, how far an attacker could go into that rabbit hole and what are the level of access that we could get. And obviously recommend the solutions that needs to be implemented for to solve those vulnerabilities and exploitation processes. Okay. And the, the difference between that and breach attack simulation. The thing with breach attack simulation is a little bit different because sometimes penetration testing, even with internal penetration testing that we could assume a breach, that's basically the idea behind breach attack simulation, assume that you have a breach in your system. Assume that someone is internally or has internal access to your to your environment. From that point, what the attacker could do. But the thing with breach attack simulation is that you could you could simulate things like, for instance, in a pen test, as a pen tester, you have your scope of work or the guidelines that you need to follow and the objectives. But with breach attack simulation, you could actually go ahead and plan the actual TTPs that you want to test. And when I said TTPs, is basically the simulate that I have Conti in my network. What could happen if I have Conti? What are the controls in place that will control or prevent those TTPs to be executed? Yeah. I am not worried about, in that process, I am not worried about how can I get access into your system because I have access to your system. From that point in your network, how far can I go? So that that's something important to understand. Then there, there is a bunch of flavors that you could add, could be automated. You could use tools. You could use automation process to perform those TTPs in a time that you want. You could use humans, obviously, to execute those TTPs and make those evasions and, and bypass 
cybersecurity controls and see what happens. But the key thing to understand here, or to understand with the difference between pen testing and breach attack simulation is that breach attack, we are not worried about how can I get initial access. I will have as an attacker, as a consultant, I will have initial access to your systems. From that point in, in the network, I will try to do whatever, right? Whatever the program will set. And I think the difference is the outcome. The penetration testing sees if you can get access and then move laterally. Breach attack simulation, I understand, is to simulate these attacks on the host itself to see if the activity A was detected, did it log it? B, did that specific tactic, technique, or procedure, did that actually run? Did it execute on there? Was it successful? Did the alerting, did our EDR product pick that up? Did it make it to the SIM? Did it make it all the way to my managed detection response? I think what I understand is it just tests the entire life cycle that the tool actually can detect. You have an analytic for that, can detect for, let's say it's lateral movement, cobalt strike. So it can detect that activity. But we also could see if a log is generated, did it make it to the console? And did it make it to, to someone's desk to action it? Exactly. So I think that's the difference, right? Where you would say, all right, this machine, we did a vulnerability assessment. ASR function is looked at the vulnerability manager, determined this is the risk posture. But then at the same time, would hand it to internal pen testers and say, what can you do with this? Can you penetrate with these known vulnerabilities and any exploits related to this? But at the same time, the last dimension would be to to executing on that host and attempting lateral movement, attempting maybe it's the top 20 TTPs for the top uh, 20 ransomware strains. And And that's why a lot of times breach attack simulation is used in conjunction with detection teams because it's a continuous process for, in the ideal scenario, right? It could be one-time assessment, but in the ideal scenario, it's a continuous process for blue teams to be able to understand if the tools that they have in place, like you mentioned before, or the processes are good enough for them to take actions, right? So that's something important also as a main difference between isolated penetration testing exercises and breach attack simulation exercises. Yeah, I guess it matters what everything relies on good quality in, good quality out. So if you didn't have a good vulnerability management platform, let's say you weren't using Qualys, maybe you're using Nessus with old nasal signatures and so forth. That does not give you the same overview of the threats of your asset are to the ASR program. Then you won't pen test the right thing. It just seems like you can start off with a real rent rudimentary tool. And I was great. I loved the fact that I got to go through all that sands training I did. It was wonderful. It taught you how to use the open source tools for different things. But that's not what you see in enterprises. People are not using a lot of those open source tool sets in enterprises and so forth. So when considering a what tool set, what should I look for? I mean, you got your Qualys systems, you got all these other commercials, but it does seem like some may have bells and whistles I don't need. Some may have functionality that I do that is real important to me. What have y'all noticed when it comes to all the tools that are out there that people use for vulnerability management programs. Jason, you want to? (laughs) Any one of you. Sure. Jason, I don't know if you want to comment on that or should I start? Go ahead. I'll jump in. Okay. Sure. In my point of view, the good thing about the commercial tools 
is obviously support. <laughs> you don't need to go ahead and start like reviewing GitHub channels or forums or whatever. And also the integration with a lot of like things that you could have probably from the same or from other open source tools, but you will have everything in one single place. So th there is a bunch of like commercial tools that will have just the vulnerability assessment engine, but will have a lot of uh, services or things on top of that, like for instance, risk levels or prioritization or things like that, that will give you a lot of context, just not basically the results. Even with that, again, we need to understand that the tool will just give us the information for us as humans or as an expert to take that information and make action. Again, I see a lot of times when people tries to integrate things and automate remediation processes. And a lot of times we have vulnerability that says that your Windows or Linux system is updated, is outdated, and you need to implement whatever fix or whatever patch to that system. If we don't have the right change process in place, if we don't have the right change management process, probably that system will be will have issues or will have inconvenience when we apply the patch because we are not testing correctly we don't have a lot of things that do not rely on the system so we need to also understand that a good attack surface reduction program is not just a tools it's not just yeah i'm using the number one tool in the market based on gardner based on whatever it's about people, it's about the process, it's about the experience of the people that run those tools. A lot of times internal clients ha has internal vulnerability assessment teams or vulnerability management teams that wants to run those executions and they do it because it's simple. You only install the engine, click execute or mm -hmm. configure the standard policy and that's it, not science rocket. The real science rocket is how can I merge my results with something that the remediation teams will need to remedy. For instance, deliver a final report that says, I don't know, it says score 10 and you need to fix your HTTPS certificates because those are bats. They're, those are using SSL version 3 and that's critical. Probably the remediation team is not going to understand that. It's just going ahead and said, I purchase the certificates from whatever vendor or I use my own CA. What do you want me to do? Do you want me to recreate the certificates? Do you want me to create my whole public infrastructure again just because you are saying that to me? It's not make sense, right? So that's why we need people with the right skill set to interpret the results that came from those tools. So tooling is important. Again, I think that we have with rep teaming or pen testing exercises, even with breach attack simulations. Sometimes clients came to us and said, yeah, I want to test whatever EDR. I use one of the top 10 EDRs in the market. I want to test that. <laughs> Our speech is nothing like, yeah, we are going to defeat your EDR and we're going to try to bypass whatever. Yeah, that could be an outcome. But reality is a lot of the times attackers are not going to spend a lot of time doing those bypasses. They are just going to see that, yeah, even if the EDR detect what I did as an attacker, you don't have the right people to understand the alert, to understand the activity that happens and to trigger or to triage everything that you are collecting internally to react into that attack. So we are testing not just the tools, we are testing the process, we are testing a lot of things that a single platform is not going to test. So that's something key in my perspective. It's not just tooling, it's everything related to the whole process.
Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, Jason, we heard customers saying that there, there's too many tools, actually, right? They want to do a rationalization project. They want to get down to functional benefits. And instead, they got 15, 20 different tools they're trying to integrate. None of them work. Yeah, I think a lot of organizations spend more money on tooling than they do on staffing a lot of times. So they have a lot of tools that they can't really use. They don't have the people that know how to use them. They're not going to getting the benefit from those tools and really not getting their money's worth. So I think that's a real issue. But circling back though, one of the other things when you're looking at a platform, in my experience at least, is the output that you can get from some of those tools can make a lot of the full circle functionality and the importance of having the right people in place and the expertise. Speaking from the platform itself, the optics, the, the outputs that you're able to create and deliver to your leadership team to, to show this is what we're seeing. This is our progress over time. The ease of exporting those graphs, visuals for folks on your team to see and track the progress over time. I think that's great. One of the things that I also wanted to mention is something a little different, something I haven't seen as functional within, say, a Qualys, but the developing or constant collecting of an enterprise asset inventory is something that I've really grown to love within another tool called Wiz, more so on the cloud side, but the asset inventory collected and it does make, it's like having an additional CMDB. You're able to see a lot of the infrastructure within that tool, which is pretty great. Definitely something, one of the features that, that I've really enjoyed. Yeah, that makes sense. And then how does it all come together in a, an environment and how do you make these pieces in parts? I think the first thing to start off with, if correct me if I'm wrong, Jason, but if I was to walk into a big organization and I have a very, very low level of maturity for attack surface reduction, I barely checked the box with vulnerability management. Would the first step be that I can't protect what I don't know? So I should do an asset inventory and say, okay, let's scrub the CMDB. Let's go through it. What assets are in there? What's actually defined? Are those even still valid? Do we have valid owners to it? How reliable is that information? Because how, how do you pile on top of that attack surface reduction, vulnerability management, all this stuff, when you have no idea what the assets are, which ones are part of departments that are considered OT, they're not part of IT, they may be some kind of integration we have to another third party that's not even our network but we're seeing some of the traffic so would, what would you agree with number one is a get your assets in order and then b have a platform that ever actually would cover the types of assets i've seen vulnerability management some software that don't support certain versions of linux or they don't support authenticated scans like you can scan from the outside but I need credentials to actually check for several of the vulnerabilities and whether they exist. So there's credentialed scans that some don't support. So was is that kind of where you would focus on if you had to build one from scratch, maturity level zero, where would you start? Yeah, I feel like you, you, know, you said it perfectly. You can't protect what you don't know. You can't protect what you're not aware of. So ensuring that that asset identification or asset discovery is something that you have and then constantly updating. You're, you've got to do continuous scanning. You've got to continue to identify assets that are within your infrastructure that you're, you haven't seen, that you're not tracking. And then even when you do that, you're probably still going to end up buying a lot of shadow IT or unmanaged devices that are going to continuously crop up. So I think that that continuous scanning is definitely going to benefit you in the long run. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I think here, one of the biggest things management can have a huge impact on. One is getting rid of old stuff. We actually, you have to have a process to actually decommission it, get it physically off the network. 
Stop thinking about, let's just put it over here. We'll connect it to the network and we'll just segment it off. I think sometimes I got to make a hard decision and actually get rid of technology assets that, that we can't manage and we can't be able to secure and put our arms around it. I don't think enough people actually do that. I think there's a problem with ASR functions in enterprises when you have all these AWS desktops or these virtual desktops and they spin them up for these different projects. Well, A, they won't put EDR on it. And then for some clients that do have EDR, all of a sudden we're seeing we eat up a license, all of a sudden it disappears, or we have operating systems up with no EDR product. And oh, that's part of the lab. And that's why we didn't have it. It seems to be a real problem when you have an EDR product and then you have test dev environments that people could just do whatever to. But how do we go around solving that? How do we allow them to have test machines that they could spin up, but it has to deploy CrowdStrike. We have to put it in a certain containment or whatever the EDR might be. We have to do something to protect it. We can't just leave it wide open while they test. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, you know, that, I mean, that that's definitely something that I think that's a bigger issue. I do think that a lot of that can be solved with the right policies and then policy enforcement. I think as a, an ASR function, it's in your job description to identify these issues and then bring them to the attention of your risk team. Who's managing the risk and raise these issues. The ASR identifies these, they can bring these to your risk team and make sure they're being tracked and these things aren't just being forgotten about over time. And Jason and and Ken, I'm really glad y'all can join me too on today's show today, being able to talk about attack surface reduction, vulnerability management. So what do you see in some of the enterprises? I think in other further shows, we're going to dev more in details about this because I think there's a lot that we can uncover. We've been into several big customer sites. I've seen where the attack surface reduction function reduce incidents probably by a hundredfold. Because when you just have really good hygiene, you have strong configurations, you have services that are shut down, that are not being used. When you have that kind of continuous maintenance and life cycle on systems, it's just much harder for any attacker to get a foothold. And we have less breaches. We have less incidents. We have less problems. But I find with those environments that it's the Wall West, you don't know where the assets are. There's different versions. This one has this service back on. That one has that service back on. That's a nightmare. That is is completely hard. The incident, the number of incidents go through the roof and it just seems to be unmanageable if you don't have a strong ASR function. Definitely. A lot of things to discover and that that's why we love our job because every single time you have new things to test, new things to bypass, new things to to play with. So that that's funny in our portion of the work, right? There is the other portion to fix those things. That's a tricky and not that easy part, but uh, at least is is something that will give you as a customer or as a client uh, full visibility that, yeah, we need to either invest or spend some time correcting those vulnerabilities. Yeah. And I definitely see where they next actually test these things and these failovers, fail them over, go to your backup firewall systems, yeah. do a lot of this kind of stuff that you never anticipate unless it actually happens and so forth. But man, I really appreciate y'all's time today. I think we covered a lot of ground. I think when you're looking at maturing that other side of the coin, it's not just about incidents and how do you respond to incidents, it's how do you prevent incidents in the first place through strong configuration management, through strong asset management, and then through strong ASR program that combines threat intelligence and vulnerability management. So appreciate everybody joining us today. Look forward to talking to everybody again soon. Please hit that subscribe. More episodes are coming out every Tuesday, and we look forward to hearing your feedback. So everybody have a great day. Stay secure.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Cybersecurity America on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you've learned some valuable information to help you be a better executive leader and navigate today's complex world of cybersecurity. Until next week, stay secure. Thank you.